0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. indicts four members of China's People's Liberation Army in connection with the 2017 Equifax breach. North Korea establishes an internet template for pariah regime sanctions evasion. Iran sustained a major DDoS attack Saturday. The U.S. Democratic Party seeks to avoid a repetition of the Iowa caucus in other states as the Sanders campaign asks for a partial re-canvas. And Israel's Likud party is involved in a voter database exposure incident via its own app. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, February 10th, 2020. This morning, U.S. Attorney General Barr announced the indictment of four members of China's People's Liberation Army on charges related to the 2017 data breach at Equifax. The four officers, whom the Attorney General did not name, face nine charges of conspiracy to hack and commit economic espionage. The PLA is alleged to have broken into Equifax, stolen personal information on about 150 million Americans, that's roughly half the U.S. population. Names, dates of birth, and social security numbers were among the data taken. The hackers are also said to have stolen Equifax intellectual property, particularly trade secrets involving techniques of handling very large databases of personal information. The breach was reported by Equifax in 2017 and has been under investigation since then. The Department of Justice leaders who spoke at the press conference repeatedly thanked Equifax for its cooperation in the investigation. The attorney general said, quote, The attack is of a piece with other Chinese illegal acquisition of data, end quote. He reviewed China's record of espionage and said that this particular attack is particularly worrisome, because of the data's potential utility in enabling artificial intelligence and in developing targeting packages against U.S. citizens. The officials said the U.S. normally doesn't bring criminal charges against foreign military or intelligence personnel. It's only the second time the U.S. has indicted members of the People's Liberation Army, the first being the indictment of five officers in May of 2014 on charges of stealing industrial trade secrets. The officials at the Department of Justice briefing stress that Chinese espionage is different. They attribute some 80% of espionage to China and said that the People's Republic is responsible for 60% of trade secret theft. The differences lie first in the indiscriminate collection against individual Americans. In no respect, the Justice Department says, can collecting PII on half of the country's population be considered a legitimate targeted espionage campaign? Moreover, the industrial espionage is being conducted to support the business of Chinese firms, and that too is not a customary goal of intelligence gathering. Kaspersky Lab warns that North Korea's Lazarus Group, APT38, while retaining its focus on cyber attacks that can help redress Pyongyang's chronic sanctions-induced financial shortfalls, has recently grown subtler and more evasive, showing greater facility at misdirection, The increase in sophistication has followed the group's Operation Apple Juice, which showed the Lazarus Group's first focus efforts against macOS targets. The threat actor has refined its technique against both Windows and macOS systems. The Lazarus Group has recently been most active against the cryptocurrency sector, and most of its victims, chosen opportunistically, have been in the UK, Poland, Russia, and China. The NetBlocks Internet Observatory reported Saturday that Iran sustained a large distributed denial-of-service attack. The Financial Tribune quotes authorities as saying that they successfully parried the attack and that they were unable to attribute the incident to any nation-state actor. Forbes writes that 25% of Iran's Internet was rendered unavailable, but that's after Iran activated its Digital Fortress Defenses, which are thought to impose their own penalty on connectivity as a cost of increased security. That Iran declined to attribute the attack to any specific nation-state or indeed to any particular threat actor at all is noteworthy. The DDoS attack took place the day before yesterday's failed attempt to put Iran's Zafar satellite into orbit, and some outlets, like Emirati newspaper The National, speculate that this timing may have been more than coincidence. But this has remained uncorroborated speculation. The launch took place, but the satellite failed to reach orbit. Tehran, in announcing the results of the attempted launch, did not call out a cyber attack or any foreign interference as a cause of the failure. Wary, after the Iowa Democrats' dismaying experience with a misbehaving app during last week's caucus in that state, Party officials in Nevada told the Nevada Independent Thursday that they decided to forego using any mobile applications whatsoever for their caucus, but that may not be entirely the case. Saturday, the Nevada Independent reported that precinct leaders would receive iPads with a preloaded tool they would use to assist them with their viability calculations. The party cautioned its precinct workers not to refer to the software on their iPads as an app because it's not an app at all, they say. It's actually a tool. How that avoids being a distinction without a difference remains unclear. In any case, it's apparently not going to be a tool produced by Shadow Incorporated, the firm that built the failed Iowa Reporter app. The Wall Street Journal isn't particularly optimistic about the upcoming Nevada caucus, describing preparations as cobbled together. It's worth noting that caucuses aren't primaries— Primaries, like the one coming in New Hampshire, are much closer to a preliminary election than are the more informal caucuses. Primaries are run by state governments using procedures and technology similar, if not identical, to that used in elections. The less transparent caucuses are run by state parties, and the Washington Post says Democrats are worried about other caucuses repeating Iowa's unfortunate experience. It's also worth repeating, again, because there's been so much misleading speculation to the contrary, that there's no reason to reach for a cyber attack to explain why events in Iowa happened as they did. The problems with reporting the results seem entirely explicable in terms of the buggy app the state party saddled itself with. As Dr. Freud is apocryphally said to have put it, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, and in Nevada, sometimes an app is just a tool. Or something like that. Iowa's caucus isn't over yet, either. The Sanders campaign has said it will ask for a partial re of that state's party results, according to The Hill. The issues in Iowa have reminded many that this year's round of elections are likely to be anything but routine. We checked in with Shannon Brewster from AT&T Cybersecurity for his insights on election security.
1: I would say that election operations are done in a very decentralized way in the United States it has pros and cons, right? I mean, it creates a fragmented approach, but it also makes it difficult for an external threat actor to attack those jurisdictions with a single campaign because every operation is different. They're using different technologies. They're bringing forward a different approach.
0: For the folks who have this task ahead of them, what sort of recommendations do you have? What are some of the best practices for uh, specifically to uh, securing
1: elections? I would bring forward three main points. That's a great question. I mean, the first first thing you need to think about is what are my risks and do I understand my attack surface, right? And secondly, I would say you really want to think about how do I baseline a security program that is specifically applied to elections and don't overlook the basics. You know, we, we really get caught up sometimes in hearing about the threat actors, the nation states. But if you step back and consider what an election is doing and what it's there for, you have to appreciate that public trust in the integrity of that election is really fundamental. And when it comes to that, perception can be reality, right? So simple fundamental security basics that should be implemented when you're putting together a system – really shouldn't be overlooked, right, because any breach of something fundamental like that could be just as devastating as an external threat actor. And then the third thing I would say is be aware of the resources that are available through DHS, cyber infrastructure security agency that sits as a subcomponent under DHS, and some of other, the other resources that can be taken advantage of through third parties to help you know, baseline that program and, and build out a program that is maturing over time.
0: You know, it really strikes me that this is a collaborative process between not just the folks on the technical side of the House, but those people who have to communicate the message out to the public, uh, like you say, for confidence in the uh, in the elections themselves, that these are the things that we're doing and you can uh, you can rest assured that um, these elections are going to be valid.
1: That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I would say if you approach it holistically, that is probably the best approach to be able to communicate that message that you've taken a proactive approach, using a security framework. You know, to baseline a program against DHS is is recommending NIST CSF as an example. It's a very simple framework to align to, and you know, you've got those five five areas right: identify, detect, protect, detect, and respond, recover. So you know, aligning. Everything you're doing holistically and not getting focused on one particular component of the operation is really fundamental.
0: That's Shannon Brewster from AT&T Cybersecurity. Apps are causing other parties and other countries problems, too. Haaretz reports that Israel's Likud Party's unsecured elector app uploaded and leaked names, identification numbers and addresses of more than 6 million voters. The paper explains that... Israeli political parties receive personal details of voters before the elections and commit to protecting the privacy, as well as not to reproduce the registry, not to provide it to a third party, and to permanently erase all the information once the election is over. So this is apparently a case of inadvertent exposure, not theft of a voter database. Electors developer FeedBee minimized the incident as a one-off incident that was immediately dealt with. The company says it's upgraded its security since learning of the exposure. It's unknown whether anyone improperly accessed the data, but the possibility is difficult to exclude, and the people who potentially had access to the data aren't all in Israel. Elector has users in other countries, including, according to Haaretz, Russia, China, the United States, and Moldova. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, You know, there's that old saying about uh, those who uh, forget history are doomed to repeat it. Yes. And uh, I saw an article come by uh, from The Register, and this was... Taking us down a little trip about the old Clipper chip back in the 90s. A little trip um, down memory lane. Little, exactly. Down now.
2: bad memory lane.
0: I suspect there are, we have probably a lot of listeners, uh, perhaps younger folks, who yep. may not be familiar with the Clipper chip. Can you give
2: us a little overview of what it was about? The Clipper chip was a way to introduce a backdoor into cryptographic algorithms by having a chip on the device that would allow the government access to encrypted communications.
0: It's important to remember that back in the the early to mid-90s, when this was a thing, it was much more efficient to do encryption in hardware than in software. The computers just weren't that fast back then.
2: Yeah, encryption is always more efficient to do in hardware. It's just that now we have computers that can do it with the same amount of overhead. It's just they're much more powerful and faster now. Yeah. But keeping that in mind, these chips were, were terrible chips. First off, they were expensive. Right. And second off, they had all kinds of vulnerabilities in them. Hmm. And the article actually says that uh, the chips were so bad that people who worked on the project were actually leaking information about how bad they were because they were concerned about the security of these systems.
0: And the notion here was that this is a way that if you were someone who felt like you needed to use encryption, right. you could. But if the NSA needed to get at that data, they had a backdoor that was burned into the chip.
2: Right. And not just the NSA, any law enforcement agency that uh, presumably would get a warrant to do it. I don't Mm -hmm. know, but maybe just look at it. Who knows? Right. Uh, It's ripe for abuse is is my concern.
0: And how did it play
2: out? Yeah, It eventually failed. It met a lot of resistance from uh, security and privacy advocates. And Mm. then once all the information came out about how buggy it was, it kind of just died off and Mm. wasn't picked up. Right. But now we're back at it again. (laughs) <laughs> as as a nation here in the United States. The crypto wars are back. Right. Yeah. And uh, Attorney General Barr has said that he needs to have access to encrypted communications with a backdoor, and he's pressuring tech companies. And this is nothing new. This is also done under the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Eric Holder was a big proponent of this as well. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, most telling things is Senator Lindsey Graham, who says to the tech companies, quote, You're going to find a way to do this, or we're going to do it for you. Mm. Uh, Now, you'll forgive me, Senator, with all due respect. I I do not have faith in your ability or the the Senate's ability to write a law that is knowledgeable about cryptography and and can do this well.
0: Well, and I've seen people – yeah, I've seen people respond to this and say you can't legislate math. Right, uh, and
2: what they're talking about there is you can make Facebook and WhatsApp and Apple all put backdoors into their – communication, mm-hmm. right? And then, yes, you can have access to that communication. All that will do is give you access to law-abiding citizens information. Right. Right? The criminals are going to write their own code. They're mm-hmm. going to write their own software, and they're going to use that. Uh, and that's how they're going to encrypt it. And you will not have a back door into that, no matter what. Period. That and won't not,
0: happen. And it's not a hard thing to do these it's, days. It's
2: really not. The yeah. libraries are out there to be implemented. All you have to do is implement it correctly. It's Pretty well documented on how to do it right. Yeah. There is a paper that was written, a a position paper, called Keys Under Doormats Mandating Insecurity by Requiring Government Access to All Data and Communications. Mm. Okay? Um, This reads like a who's who. The author's list reads like a who's who of cryptography. Whit Diffie is on the author's list. Mm. Matthew Green from Hopkins Mm. is on the author's list. Ronald Rivest, he's the R in RSA. Mm. He's on the author's list. Bruce Schneier is a contributor to this paper. Mm-hmm. And Matt Blaze, who's quoted a lot in this register article, is also on this paper. Yeah. And there are many other authors on this, on this paper. Those are just the more notable names mm-hmm. that, that pop out to me. Uh, but this paper takes a very strong stance against backdoors into encryption and and why it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, first off, if you do it, you really weaken the encryption for everybody, right? Right. You and I will not be able to communicate securely bad guys will probably get access to it with a very high confidence interval, I'm saying. Mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. I would say it's 95% the case that that system is going to be found to be vulnerable at some point in time.
0: Mm.
2: But what's, what's more important is that oppressive regimes could use this as well, mm. right? If you mandate access to this communication from the American standpoint, how do you stop someone like an Iranian regime from saying, we need to find all the dissidents in our network who are violating our laws? Give us the keys,
0: mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm.
2: How do you how do you say we can't do that now?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And while here in America we have certain legal protections, right, that are not available abroad. But in America we have those legal protections now, right? What about the future? Mm. I you know maybe I'm not concerned about Senator Graham or, or or Attorney General Barr, but what about ten years from now? Who's going to be in those offices? We have no idea who's going to be in those offices,
0: mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Um, and I want to be protected against that down the road.
0: Mm. All right. Well, it's an interesting uh, trip down memory lane. I, I suggest uh, for our listeners, if you're not familiar with the story of the clipper chip, it's a, it's a good background to kind of inform uh, your knowledge of, of how we got to where we are today when it comes to uh, this encryption conversation. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave.